People like to have one sure and certain loyalty. It is the place. It may be as tiny as a burial ground where bones of their forefathers rest. It may be half a continent whose landmarks bear the names that the genders bestowed. Acre or empire will fight for it until the spirit is dead. Montana journalist and historian Joseph Kinsey Howard could be talking about places near and dear to Montanans. Could be the Battery Two Medicine, the Big Hole National Battlefield, German Gulch, Fort Benton, maybe even the Marcus Daly Mansion. He's really speaking to all places and all people. Um, I like to think that he had in mind the South Fork of the Teton River west of Shoto and the Métis of Montana. Morning, my name is Emily Sackerson, and I've already been introduced, but I'm a native of Bismarck, North Dakota, and I currently work as an architectural historian, but my passion in the broader scheme is historic preservation. I studied at University of Montana, um, and I spend a great deal of time on the Rocky Mountain Front, where my mother's family maintains a summer home, and uh, it's there where stories like Joseph Howard's uh, where my interest in history and old stories like his really began. When visiting my grandmother at her home place 25 miles west of Shoto, I was often sent to the neighbors to play with the other noisy children. <laughs> and uh, the neighbors happened to be the Pineview Guest Ranch, which was formerly the Circle 8 Dude Ranch. Before it became a ranch in the 1930s, that same piece of land hosted a settlement of Métis families. When I would play there as a child, I'd ask uh, people about the Métis cemetery that was on the hill, or the irrigation ditch that ran past the old lodge. I'd ask who built these things and how, and I'd sit on the front porch of one of the summer leaseholders with my older brother, and uh, we'd ask to hear stories of her childhood on that ranch back in the 40s. That was poet Ripley Hugo. She'd tell us about the Gleasons, who started the Dude Ranch in the 1930s. She'd delight in telling us about Mormon Bruno, uh, the Métis man who built the very porch we were sitting on, and who for a short time had to pet bear cub until it off his finger. And she talked about Joseph Kinsey Howard, and uh, you know he's a writer who summered in a cabin across the river, and she's very close with him. That's where he wrote Montana Highwide and Handsome and Strange Empire. And it wasn't until years later when I read Joe Howard's work and I talked with Al Wiseman here today, this year's recipient of the Montana Heritage uh, Keepers Award, that I got a clear picture of what this place looked like for the people from whom he's descended and why it still matters to that community today. And it's a community that has a fascinating history that in my opinion illustrates the significance of place in our cultural identity and our understanding of the past and the lasting value of our built environment. So I'm a historic preservationist, and I believe that preservation of place begins with a story. I also believe that the impulse to retain that story is culturally entrenched, and that it results in conscious decisions to maintain, celebrate, or revitalize cultural traditions as they're imprinted on place. What people strive to protect from the forces of time, neglect, and decay are manufacturers of who they are and from where they came. The place that I'm going to talk about is the South Fork of the Teton. It's a narrow and shallow river that winds through the greater Rocky Mountain front, whose east face rises abruptly from the semi-arid Great Plains. It's a dramatic and memorable setting. As the South Fork exits the Rockies, it creates a canyon which widens for approximately a mile and a half uh, before it bends sharply past the slope of Crystal Mountain. 
Ownership of this area is a complex patchwork of federal and private interests. Much of the land west of the South Fork is managed by the USFS as the westernmost reaches of the Lewis and Clark National Forest. And within the National Forest are several wilderness designated areas with the Bob Marshall. Lands east of the canyon past its narrow mouth are privately owned ranch lands and scattered subdivisions. For the canyon floor, where remnants of a late 19th Métis century Métis settlement can be found, is currently the Pine Butte Guest Ranch, which has been run by the Nature Conservancy since 1988. And the ranch consists of 34 buildings, originally developed by Kenneth and Alice Gleason, who arrived here in 1930, a pair of starry-eyed newlyweds. Alice describes their first impressions of this place. Pete, Alice liked to call her husband Kenneth Pete. <laughs> Pete and I were going to start a new ranch. A lot of money had been made that way during the delirious 20s. We had a vision of riding down the trail, a long string of dudes and fancy get-up behind us. We were homesteading a section of grazing land, joining the National Forest. It was a peaceful little valley with a small river running through it, surrounded by high rocky mountains. It had once been the site of an Indian village, which was rich in Indian legends, cemeteries, and rotting log cabins. Alice's memoirs from her early dude ranching days are published. It's called uh, Starting from Scratch, which is a misleading title because there were already several rotting log structures, <laughs> <laughs> which they later incorporated into the dude ranch itself. Uh, one was a hunting lodge that Kenny's uncle Jesse, who showed a residence moving very well, locally known landscape painter, built with the help of his Métis friend, Norman Bruno. His uncle Jesse had lived there for a short time in the 1920s. Here you see the, the Gleason couple up here. Oops. Sorry, I didn't mean it. <laughs> Here's some of the summer leases, building a cabin. Much of this is still standing. Uh, but Jesse had lived there among a handful of Métis families, and he established his hunting lodge. And it was a period of transition for those still living in the canyon, and most had moved out onto the plains or into town by this point. And from the lodge that he built, Jesse led hunting trips into the Bob Marshall. And when his nephew, Kenny, wanted to enter recreation business, he was the one who helped buy up the pit claims that were needed to start the Silver Lake Ranch. One of the Gleason's unique marketing strategies began in the 40s and involved establishing several long-term leases in and around the, the Circle Eight with prominent Montana residents. And the first and most notable of their summer leases was Joseph Kinsey Howard, son of Mrs. Josephine Howdy Howard, one of the Gleason's earliest dudes and most loyal patrons. Here's Howdy up here with the Gleason's on her side and her son, Joseph Kinsey Howard. This is their summer cabin. This was where uh, he wrote many of his works. So they were residents of Great Falls and spent their summers in the Griffin cabin, as it's known now. And he and his mother moved to Great Falls in 1919, where he landed a job at the Daily Paper. And in 20, uh, 1926, at the age of 20, he was promoted to the news editor of the leader. And that launched him into a series of endeavors documenting the history and the cultural development of the state of Montana. In 1943, Howard resigned from the newspaper and joined the Montana Study, a project funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. He worked to record the social and economic conditions across small town Montana. 
and completed a collection of short fiction and poetry entitled Montana Margins, a state anthology. His work gained national uh, attention, and he became a stringer for Time, Harper's Magazine, and the New York Times. Much of uh, his research and writing took place at this cabin at the Circle Lake Ranch. He was an influential journalist, historian, and author. His works of nonfiction, including Montana, High, Wide, and Handsome, earned him the posthumous nickname Montana's Conscience from my grandfather, his friend and novelist, Amy Guthrie Jr. Here the two writers are at the Circle Lake. In the 40s, Joe Howard had intended to write a novel based on Métis individuals that he met during his time in this part of Montana. And as his relationship with this particular community along the South Fork evolved, he realized they had an important story not yet told. He redirected his efforts to record this encompassing narrative in the definitive Métis history, Strange Empire. The Métis people have been the subject of a lot of recent historical research Notice that many of the recent uh, Montana Historical Society conference uh, lectures and sessions have been on the Métis history in Montana. Members of this cultural group are considered, in many ways, the descendant children of the fur trade. They share a rich history that feeds into broader themes, such as the colonization of the North American continent, the settlement of the American West, national Indian removal policy, and most recently, the assertion of cultural identity and indigenous rights. It's an epic of ethnic convergence upon the arrival of Europeans and Anglo-Americans to the Northeastern Great Plains region. In Nicholas Ruman's anthology, The Whole Country is One Road, he defines the Métis identity historically as having embodied a blending of each of the Aboriginal and European backgrounds and the family's specific mixing. As a whole, this evolved into a characteristic new culture, sharing predominantly Creek, Assiniboine, Chippewa, French, and Scott heritage. The merging of these ethnic groups has led to popular confusion concerning their cultural affiliations and their ethnic identities. In the 20th century, these groups have collectively become known in the U.S. as the Canadian Creed, or the Landless Indians of Montana. Shared historical experiences, marginalization, persecution, and discrimination unite them today as a unique ethnic group which can be studied as discrete communities. In Montana, each community contributes with cultural interconnectedness to a political alliance that you may know as the Little Shell Tribe of Chippewa Indians of Montana. And for the Métis, tragic consequences accompany the imposition of the U.S. and Canadian sovereignty. Among these consequences were forced migration of families across the plains, military suppressions of their uprisings known as the Northwest Rebellions, the subsequent execution of their Métis leader, Louis Riel and an exclusion from land negotiations throughout the reservation period. And in the wake of cultural disruptions like these, a handful of Métis families settled in the seclusion provided by the winding canyon mouth of the South Fork of the Teton River, where the Circle Eight and Joe Howard's cabin now stands. Over time, a thriving community developed here. At its peak, there were over 100 Métis in the canyon, living a subsistence lifestyle, supplemented by milling lumber, ranching, and occasional government subsidies. As the threat of persecution gradually lifted, members of what many once stigmatized as the Métis Reed Town filtered into the surrounding communities. By 1930, the Bruno family had relinquished the last of the Métis homesteads with the, uh, within the South Fork Canyon. You can still see remnants of this community's past in the South Fork. Here's the Bruno homestead. It might be hard to make out but this line of stones indicates the, 
the foundation of their cabin. There's now uh, a horse trail through it. This narrative is necessary historical context for conceptualizing the importance of the remnants of this particular Métis settlement. And it also reveals the relationship between people and place, which is the foundation of historic preservation. And uh, it also plays a significant role in the perpetuation of the Métis traditional cultural identity in Montana. There's a cemetery here, still maintained, still used. Uh, the, the cemetery was begun in 1890. There are also uh, other remnants of structures. This is a once a earth insulated root cellar, and you can see the logs jutting out of the bushes that have overgrown it. And some of the artifacts that you might find scattered across the canyon floor sort of help you to interpret those, what was once here. So Joseph Sifford Bruno immigrated to Montana from Canada around 1880, the age of 21. He sought to earn a living as a timber logger around, along the Rocky Mountain front. In 1890, he made, married Grazine Ameline, pictured here in her older age on the left. She was also a Métis immigrant from Canada. As a young girl, Grazine had fled Saskatchewan with her family and settled not far from Shoto um, in Augusta, about 26 miles away. She and Bruno married at the St. Peter's Mission. And for those of you who are familiar with the history of Métis conflicts, that's the same mission, the same Roman Catholic mission, where less than five years before Gabriel Dumont famously recruited Louis Riel to lead his people in a rebellion against the Canadian government. So wary of the political repercussions experienced by the Cree and the Métis on either side of the U.S.-Canada border, Joseph Bruno and his new bride chose to settle along the south fork of the Teton. Tucked deep within the eastern slopes of the mountains, Basil Laurent Sr. and his family did so, and the Grays, St. Germain's, and a man by the name of Albert Parenteau known to many as Big Bear. Between 1876 and 1890, over 100 Métis men, women, and children called this canyon home, and all were refugees living off the land and remaining relatively on the west. Only Joseph Bruno and Basil Lawrence's son, Jackson, ever held any formal title to it. And it was an area that offered seclusion, but also resources. Horses could graze on the wild grasses, fish and game provided fresh meat, the settlers did their best to live off the land. They planted gardens, Basil Lawrence dug a small ditch to irrigate them, which is still there today. Women picked wild berries, choke cherries, currants, and made jams and jellies. And some made bannock, a type of scone that's cooked over an open flame that's um, a hallmark of sort of the Scots influence on their culture. The women reserved certain meats to make traditional staple of the diet, pemmican, which they also store by the sackful each year for winter. And the logwood cellars, like the one that I showed you a photograph of, would kind of ensure that some of these goods would last the season. Each spring, Catholic priests from St. Peter's Mission would visit to baptize new children. They'd also make special trips to read last rites. And in 1890, when Basil Lawrence, well, Basil Lawrence buried his wife, Marguerite, here, uh, the cemetery. He drove a hand-hewn cottonwood cross to mark the grave. 
The abundance of timber in this area granted them a source of income. The men harvested the majority of the building materials for their cabins from the immediate area. They cut, peeled, and loaded pine logs onto skids to guide the, them by team force, drawing each load down the mountainside. And on occasion, they'd even float the logs through the canyon on the gentle slope of the Teton. It's kind of a small river that kind of surprises me. So wood cutting or wood hawking involved to be the primary occupation of the Métis on the South Fork. With a steady influx of Anglo settlers to the outlying area, there was a growing demand for cut timber. They were close to the source and eager to develop the industry. They processed and cut and hauled firewood, fence posts, and house logs for sale to the surrounding community. Green Gulch, which is several miles deeper into the mountains, is a favorite site for cutting, and off and on a sawmill operated here, taking advantage of stands and Engelman's groups. In 1899, H.B. Ayers, the photographer for the USGS, he wound his way up and down the drainages of the Rocky Mountain front. He reported vegetation, wildlife populations, and land use along his way. He factored his report on the South Fork into the overall evaluation of the Lewis and Clark Forest Reserve. He noted that the canyon was occupied by squatters, a quote, colony of half-breed woodcutters. Photo is his photo of the activities going on in the South Fork area. Uh, but he also noted that despite discrimination and competition, the Métis settlement here produced approximately 1 million board feet and 6,000 cords of wood and poles for sale and distribution that year. So the primary market was two to three journey by day journey by wagon in Shoto, the Hirschberg and Company store, pictured here. And that was run by a pair of German immigrant brothers who uh, would then resale that lumber and materials to the ranchers and, and the developers of Shoto. To this day, the descendants of the Métis settlement here, they kind of take, they take pride in the contribution their ancestors made to the, the uh, early days of their community, the Shoto community. As families grew, more lack cabins appeared dotting the canyon floor. There were rustic cabins, four saddle-notched corners typically formed a modest-sized pen, and a mixture of bentonite clay, water, and dry horse manure filled the chinks and held the logs together. I'm told the families would sprinkle water over the dirt floors, using the straight edge of a window pane would smooth the muddy surface and allow to harden that floor would be compacted and perfect for dancing on it. Uh, Métis people are known as lovers of music, especially dancing and fiddle music. Your priority is having a good dancing floor. <coughs> so they filtered out onto the plains and into the nearby towns. Frazee and Bruno have bequeathed uh, by the time that Frazee and Bruno had bequeathed shares in her homestead to her 11 children, who then sold the quickly to Jesse Gleason. South Fork Métis managed to maintain a strong presence in this region. Descendants revisit the canyon, some with considerable frequency. Though the physical reminders of their ancestors' lives are largely in ruin, their story survives in this place. On the hillside cemetery beneath the aspen tree planted to honor Marguerite Morans decades ago, Classic flowers and memorial offerings mark the struggle of hope and an undying spirit of the marginalized people. Here, the history of the Métis and the culture of the community are forever imprinted. Much of the material evidence of the late 19th century settlement on the South Fork has been appropriated by the Circle 8 Dude Ranch, now the Pine Butte Guest Ranch. A portion of the original Circle 8 Lodge, for example, is recycled from Jesse's old hunting, uh, hunting lodge that he and 
Foreman built and, uh, a well-preserved guest cabin until recently. It was the oldest building in the canyon. Uh, it bared several characteristics associated with regional Métis building traditions, including a string, lock, a string latch locking mechanism on the door. Uh, Al Wiseman here, the local historian of Shoto, has identified other remnants of the past, and each item of information held by members within his community is etched in their shared cultural memory. This traditional knowledge is vital in understanding the significance that this community ascribes to the South Fork settlement. And they do feel that it is significant. Shoto residents of Métis descent initiated a cultural revival in fall of 1993. Nicholas Vrooman, the esteemed folklorist and now the foremost historian of the Métis narrative, he met with Al Wiseman and Duke Lawrence and Shoto and they organized a committee to research and document Métis heritage in the area. They published the Métis Cultural Recovery Trust and embarked on a series of projects ranging from the installation and of a reconstruction Red River Ox Park in front of Shoto's Old Trail Museum. This one's the one that they put the cemetery at the South Fork. And then they also recorded several dozen histories from various community members to recover the broadest reach of cultural and historical information, they enlisted the expertise of Ruman and held a series of ethnographic workshops. And this is um, at a time when, in the early 90s, a host of similar Métis cultural preservation organizations emerged uh, across the Great Lakes and Great Plains regions, likely spurred by amendments made to the Canadian Constitution that gave Métis people in Canada, Aboriginal rights, something that the Little Shell tribe continues to fight for in this country. The Métis Cultural Recovery Trust was only active for about five years, yet they gathered over 30 oral histories from the Montana Historical Society collections, and they built the Old Trail Museum's first exhibit on the Métis so that others could experience their history in this area. Métis House on display in Shoto provides visitors a glimpse into life on the South Fork, picture here, interior and exterior. The interior is a model historical Métis home based on traditional knowledge and memories passed down from generations raised on the South Fork. But Métis House is ironically enough located inside an Anglo homestead cabin that the Old Trail Museum moved to the site approximately, from approximately four miles east of Shoto. To see actual Métis traditional log construction, you would have had to visit the South Fork to see a small log cabin commonly referred to as the Hugo cabin in reference to its most recent occupant, Ripley Hugo. It was one of two structures in the canyon that remained from the period overlapping with the Métis settlement. Unfortunately, I was informed earlier this week that the Nature Conservancy allowed for the removal of this structure. Yeah. It's a great loss for the area and for many members of the community, not only Métis, Lorman Bruno is said to have constructed the Hugo Cabin in 1908 when he was just a teenager. Residents in and around Shoto and the South Fork remember Bruno as a prolific builder. They attribute several log cabins that still dot the foothills outside the canyon um, on several ranches and summer homes to his skill as a craftsman. Each bevel-ended purlin and double saddle notch on the structure was a mark of the Métis method that he had learned. They built cabins like this as best they could and from the in response to local resources, 
and they revealed a set of values behind the conscious decision on the part of the self-worth builders, function over form. Usually here, the other way around. It's a decision that afforded a family shelter, comfort, and ultimately a sense of place that stood the test of time. And though it no longer stands, it's been recorded and significance will be remembered. And this is where my research with this place and this community turns from history to historic preservation. There are many forms of preservation. There's preservation and perpetuation of tradition and cultural revival, like the cultural recovery <coughs> trust in Shoto, their work in the Shoto area. But there's also the preservation of our physical shared national heritage through documentation of historic sites, restoration and rehabilitation of old buildings, or recognition in the National Register of Historic Places. I had explored in my thesis research various ways in which this site could fit existing preservation frameworks. And I focused on the applicability of the traditional cultural property designation within the National Register system, which is a designation that exists to document and recognize, protect, and potentially fund preservation of places that derive historical significance from an intangible traditional value that's specific to an existing culture. For distinct groups, places like these hold spiritual, supernatural power, they play an integral role in traditional practice, convey stories of a particular event, or they represent a shared cultural memory. The pattern emerged in that research. The Métis men and women who are descended from the families that settled the South Fork Canyon shared with me ways in which they perceived the settlement site as meaningful to their cultural identity. Respect for place attachment is threaded throughout any discussion of historic preservation, considering that the broader Métis narrative is one that's shaped in large part by displacement. You can imagine that sentiment runs high. Though it was initially thought of as a place of refuge, a sedimentary, a sedimentary life developed here, the community grew, and it became a home. To most of us, the South Fork settlement symbolizes the tr transition that many Métis people faced in the United States. While a number of preservation strategies could potentially recognize the historical value of the South Fork settlement in Montana's history, the significance this place has to the Métis is really as a culturally reassuring link between a complicated past and a proud present. Um, these are my acknowledgments. I'd really like to thank Al Wiseman and Elaine. They have been a great help to me in this research and for many others. And uh, his award this year is well deserved. This is just a crowded slide with a lot of my references. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I put them up there. But um, if you're interested in a full bibliography, my master's thesis, Place Among the Displaced, Envisioning Preservation of a Metis Settlement in Montana through University of Oregon 2014. It's available online. Thank you.